Great to see you. So um, my name is Josh. I'm from Kentucky. I met your pastor, Jonathan Williams, a couple years ago. We became quick friends, and then I got to know Ben Grace. And so I just think the world of Ben and Sarah, and, it's, and so this community through them, I've heard a lot about you, and it's really, really good to be here. I have to tell you, when I decided, when uh, I took the opportunity to be here, uh, my almost eight-year-old had never been to New York City, and he, he watched all the episodes of Jesse on the Disney Channel. And so he just had to come. And so we decided we would come. And, uh, and I don't know if any of you are going to remember this. Some of you may be too young to remember this. But in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a paste picante sauce commercial. Does anybody remember paste picante sauce? And so there would be a group of people sitting. And I tell you this because this was the response of everybody in Kentucky that I told I was coming here. They would sit around the campfire and they would run out of salsa. And somebody would pull out a jar of salsa. And they would say, where's that salsa made? And they would say, this sauce is made in New York City. And everybody on the campfire would say, New York City. That's the exact response I got from people in Kentucky when I told them I was coming to New York City. New York City. And so uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a great week. We've been lost so many times, had a lot of weird experiences on the subway. Everything I hoped this week would be. Um, and so what I want to do today, uh, we're in, you're in this series called Roots, where you're talking about the roots of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus. And we're at a story about David and Saul that BJ just read, which is, I mean, you know, on like the one to super weird level, like scale, when you have a bathroom story, you know you're on the super weird scale, right? Because that's not a thing you expect to come to church and talk about, is let's find a story in the Bible where a guy goes to the bathroom and it seems really significant. Um, but that's what we're going to do today. So what I want to do today, I want to tell you a little bit about David, a little bit about this part of, about David. I want to talk a little bit about Jesus, and then I want to talk a little bit about us, okay? So that's the rhythm. A little bit about David a little bit about Jesus, and a little bit about us. And to understand the David part, you have to understand a little bit of the history between David and Saul. David was this young, up-and-coming kid. His stock was rising up and to the right. And Saul is this king who feels his power, almost fell. Saul is this king who feels his power slipping because everybody likes David. Everybody wants David to be in charge, and David wants to be in charge. And so Saul has this jealousy and he starts, he decides, you know, here's what I have to do. I have to kill David. Now, we tend to read the, the stories of David in the Bible as if David's a good guy, right? David's not a good guy either. Uh, how many of you watch House of Cards? David is Frank Underwood, right? This is the kind of guy David is. And so this story, which is a really odd story, is ultimately a story about power. David has been on the run because Saul wants to kill him. He's been trying to get away and he's hiding in a cave, and it just so happens that this guy who's hiding in a cave, when the guy who wants to kill him and his 3,000 men show up, this is the cave he chooses to go into to use the bathroom. Now, when people use the bathroom, it's kind of private. Would you agree? Like, generally, we were in a restaurant yesterday, and we went to, oh, I was taking my son to the bathroom. You remember this yesterday? Taking my son to the bathroom, and the door lock didn't, for the person in there, didn't work, so we opened the door, and there's just like this moment where I'm looking at this person in the eyes. It's a very small bathroom. And we're just looking at one another and it's sort of like, this is happening and I just don't know what to do about it. And so finally, for what, it probably was like two seconds, but it seemed like 25 minutes. They finally shut the door and I just told my, my son, Cohen, I was like, we just need to go sit down and we need to process what just happened because I know they're gonna be in therapy. We're probably gonna be in therapy. It's just, and so this idea that David has been powerless and now in this moment where he's on the run, the guy who wants to kill him is in a cave with, with his pants around his ankles, using it as a porta potty, and he has no idea David's there. And so David's men naturally think this is the moment where we take everything we've ever wanted, right? This is the moment where you take the throne. This is the moment where you get the power. 
And actually in that moment, David already had the power. He had, he had been on the other side of power. Saul had been chasing him. And now in this moment, he has been given the opportunity to be in total and complete power. And what does he do with it? What does he do with the power? He doesn't kill Saul. That's commendable, right? But what he does is he slips up behind him and he cuts off a corner of his rope. And then he acts like he did him a favor. Because after the text we read, there's a speech where David's like, look, I'm, I'm not a bad guy. I could have killed you. Instead, I just cut off a piece of your clothes, right? But here's the thing. In chapter 15, there's a story of a guy named Samuel who comes to Saul and says, you're done. Your days are numbered. You're not going to be king. And when Samuel turns to walk away, Saul reaches out and grabs the corner of his robe. And anybody know what happens? It tears. And Samuel turns around in good prophetic fashion. He says, and God is going to tear away the kingdom from you. And then he dropped the mic and walked away. And Saul's like, wow. And so David, this is not just David doing a good guy thing. Like I could have killed you, but I didn't. This is David making his claim. I'm the guy taking this away from you. And he does it in a in the way he does it. While Saul's going to the bathroom and he cuts off the corner of his robe. And then he comes out in front of all of Saul's men, waving the corner of the robe, talking about what a great guy he is for not killing him. Here's what David does with power in this moment. David has all the power and he uses it to diminish the dignity of another person. Like he could have said, yo Saul, we're back here in the cave. I want you to know before you go to the bathroom, we're hanging out back here. So find another cave, right? He could have done anything. And instead he takes this moment of power that he's been given. He doesn't kill him or beat him up, but not all violence is physical, is it? Sometimes you can do violence to the very dignity of a human being. You can take something away from them. David uses his power to elevate himself, to put himself in position. And he doesn't really care who he steps on to get there. Now here's the thing about our species. Our species is very, very, very tribal, right? We're a tribal species. At one point, this was a good thing for us because it helped us survive. But at some point, the very thing that used to help us survive is the thing that will kill us. All right, and if you don't believe that we're a tribal species, that we sort of rally in tribes and there's this us-them thing, right? Do you know about the us-them thing? There's an us, and us, the us is always the good guys, right? We're always on the right team. Have you ever met anybody who's like, I think I'm on the wrong team. I think, I, I think history's gonna say that we're the bad guys. We need to switch teams. Like, nobody does that. Everybody thinks they're right. And so we have us and we have them, and the important thing is protecting us most often at the expense of them, Right? And if you don't believe we're a tribal culture, just get on an airplane. How many of you fly regularly? Right? How many of you fly have ever flown? How many of you have ever flown first class? Okay, I just want to call on you to repent in the name of the Lord, because not all of us have done that. Uh, now, I have to tell you, I typically fly Southwest, and I fly Southwest because it's, it's sort of egalitarian, and I, you know, I generally feel like nobody's going to beat me up on a Southwest flight. Like, they have a pretty good record with that right now. Uh, and so Southwest, you know, it's like you go on the plane, and there is no first class. We are all economy coach people, right? Everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. And this is why when people pay the extra money for the ticket on Southwest, like, I'm like, why would you? You just got to do the got to get away because it's super cheap compared to everything else. And you walk on the plane and it's just, you find a seat. Recently, I was doing something with the One Campaign in Washington, D.C. this past spring and they paid for my flight and they said, we've got you booked on an American Airlines flight and I hadn't flown anything but Southwest in years. And I walk onto this American Airlines flight and I see these people in these big chairs and they have hot towels and they're drinking mimosas. 
And as I walk by, they look at me like, you're the vermin of the earth. Who are you to even step through this part of the planet? Like it's sort of that sort of vibe coming off of them. And maybe it's a little bit sour grapes because I wanted a mimosa and a hot towel too. Like that's fine. But I remember walking by and taking my seat way in the back of the plane and the, the flight attendant comes over and she unlocks this little hook and this curtain falls and it's mesh. And I just wanted to say to the people up front, I can still see you. I know you're there and I know you're having a better time than I am. Because I, who doesn't need leg room? Right? I need leg room, right? And here I am in the back and I just thought, here's the thing, we, we have this sort of, we have this tendency to think that, gosh, I, I have more money, I paid more money for this ticket, I'm up front, I'm better. But really, if the plane goes down, everybody's in trouble. Are you with me? It's, it's not the, oh, but you're in first class, okay, you're okay. Now everybody else, no, no, if the plane goes down, we're all in trouble. There's this other time I think about this a lot. It's when I go to my doctor's office. We, we, our family goes to this great doctor. She's fantastic. And when you walk into the doctor's office, there are two ways you can go. You can go to the left, which means you're sick, or you go to the right, which means you're healthy. And this last time I was there, I was there to have my blood pressure checked because after you turn 30 and almost go to 40, that, that's the thing that starts happening to you. And so I went in and I sat down on the right side. Do you remember the story of Jesus, the sheep and the goats? It feels like that. Like if you go to the left side, you're a goat. If you go to the right side, you're a healthy sheep. And I was sitting on the right side and I, I could see all the way across to the left side and this, this woman on the left side and her child, both like in tandem, let out this sneeze and they don't cover their mouths. And I realized in this moment, I'm on the healthy side and there's no wall. And I just imagined the spit particles floating across the doctor's office and landing on me. And I just began to feel sick and just kind of cruddy. You know what I mean? And I, they just give you this sense of if you come to this side, you're safe and you're okay. And if you're on that side, you're sick and you're not okay. But we're all in the same waiting room, getting the same germs from the same people who are sneezing on everybody over there too. We have this tribal mentality where it's about protecting us against them, using our power to make ourselves better, to sort of inflate our own ego at the expense of them. And I think, I know we, we love David and David often uh, gets painted in a really good light. I think this is a moment where David is trying to advance himself at the expense of somebody else. Which then brings us to Jesus. What is the thing Jesus does? At every opportunity, Jesus seems to find a way to use his power, to use his influence, to use his ability, not to elevate himself at another's expense, but to take somebody who has been by society, by the empire, by the religious system, he tries to find people who have been completely dehumanized, undignified, they have been squashed, they have no standing. And what does Jesus do? He uses every ounce of his energy to elevate people that are in those situations. I mean, think about it. Think about the times in the Bible for us because we, you know, lots of us probably grew up, I, I grew up in Kentucky, so we have, do you guys have flannel graphs? Anybody grew up with flannel graphs where they have this piece of flannel and they stick Bible characters on it and tell you Bible stories? You might know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about the flannel graph stories of Jesus where there's a leper, right? And a leper who has a skin disease that is highly contagious and who outside of the physical contagion, there's this whole idea of purity and impurity. And so if, if you touch the leper, you're now impure too. 
And so lepers would have to stand outside the city and scream unclean. Can you imagine how hard it is to get a date doing that? Like you're not going to be on the, the, you know, the top pick list here. You're standing outside the city just announcing your uncleanness to everybody. And Jesus goes to lepers and he doesn't just speak to them from afar. He actually goes over and he places his hand on them and he heals them and he restores them to their community. He gives them dignity. He sees their humanity and he actually moves not to sort of make himself look better. He moves to raise them up. Think about the woman in the Gospel of John chapter 8 who gets caught in the act of adultery and the sort of the religious leaders bring her and make a big thing about it. And they shame her and humiliate her. And what does Jesus do? He essentially reaches down to her and offers her dignity. Right? He calls out their hypocrisy and he offers her dignity. A woman who's been, had an issue, a medical issue that has caused her to bleed for 12 years and which means she's unclean. She, Jesus finds out she's touched him and Jesus doesn't shame her. He reaches down and he elevates her, and he gives her a new sense of dignity and a new sense of welcome and a new sense of belonging. Jesus always uses his power. Unlike his ancestor David, Jesus always uses his power to raise others up. So when we talk about Jesus as son of David, because that's a title for Jesus in the Bible, it's not that Jesus is just like David. It's that Jesus is better than David. Here's the thing. As, uh, when I became a parent almost eight years ago, I had this realization that I want, my ch- I want my son to be better than me, right? And sometimes you'll say, Dad, I want to be just like you. And I'm like, the world hasn't done anything to deserve that. They haven't been bad enough. You know, like, just, just don't do that to them. And what I'll often say to him is, I want you to be better than me. Because in my life, there were all sorts of attitudes and biases and things I had carried around with me for way too long. And, and I bet there are things in me right now that I'm not aware of that need to be left behind. And I want him to be a better human than I was. And I hope his kids, if he has kids, I hope they're better than he was. And I hope that's sort of the thing we do. I hope we just always keep getting better and better and better. And what we see in Jesus is we see somebody who comes in the line of David who says, actually, power shouldn't be used to diminish or demean anyone else. Power should always be used to heal, to forgive, to cleanse, to invite, and to raise up. What do you do when you're like Jesus, when you're like David, when you are the most powerful person in the room. What do you do with that power? Which brings us to us. What do we do with that? What do you do when you're the one in the boardroom who has the most seniority? What do you do when you're the parent and they're the kid? What do you do when you are suddenly the one everybody's looking to to make the decisions. We have choices to make. And I realize sometimes people feel like they're, they're never in power, but everybody has moments. There are times in my life when I feel like the only place I'm really in power is when I, if I ever go to Subway because I can have it my way there. You know, like I can have anything I want and they don't even say no. It's, but, and, and maybe those are the small places in life where we're in power, but really, I mean, Every human being has a realm of influence and an authority, a place where what you say ultimately is the thing. The thing people listen to, the thing people respond to, whether they like it or not, whether they respect you or not, because their job depends on it, because they're using the car this weekend depends on it, because their paycheck, what, whatever. There are reasons people do what you say. What do you and I do when we're in the room and we have the most power? We can use that power to elevate ourselves We can use that power to squash others because often that's how we do it. It's not just that we want to elevate ourselves. We feel the need 
to beat somebody else while we're doing it, to know that we trampled on those 10 people on the way up the ladder, right? So we can do that. We can play it the way that the world plays it, right? It's cutthroat, it's, this is, it's, it's eat or be eaten, it's kill or be killed, it's wound or be, wo- or wound or be wounded. I have this, um, it's a, it's, depends on who you talk to, it's a blessing or a curse. I have this gift of sarcasm that comes to me faster than my brain can often stop it. And it's really hard to be in a relationship with me sometimes <laughs> because often I use that sarcasm as a way to elevate myself at someone else's expense, right? You say the funny thing that is ultimately also the thing that wounds them, the thing that sort of takes a chunk out of their dignity so that you can add that to your dignity and that you can raise yourself up above everybody else. That's the way we could do it. Or we could take the way of Jesus, which I think is the way we're being invited, the way of the son of David, the way of giving dignity, the way of elevating other human beings. And I actually think the reason we struggle with this really, really uh, the most is because it's not because we just really don't like other people. I think that our major problem, our biggest problem, is that we really don't like ourselves. And if we're people who go around dehumanizing other people, whether it's because of their race or their sexual orientation or the sports team they like, find all the ways we do this, right? Who they, what, what political party they line up with, like however we do this. And, and Ben mentioned Facebook and social media and my goodness, if you wanna go, have to go to the doctor to have your blood pressure checked, just get on those things, right? And you see people, I have this friend who is all about love and peace and then he tells people really awful things about themselves on Facebook. Expletive ridden sort of, but then he's like, but I'm all about love, man. Like, when you tell people to go do that, like, they don't feel loved, right? So the problem isn't that we really just hate other people. I mean, that's part of it. The pro- but the problem is we haven't really learned to be okay with who we are. If we're going around removing dignity from others, it's because we feel like either it's been taken from us or that we don't deserve it. If we dehumanize others, it's probably because we haven't first recognized that we are human beings. Jesus actually puts it like this, love your neighbor, how? As yourself. We don't often tag that on there, that we just say love God and love others, right? Love God and love your neighbor. But Jesus was very specific, love your neighbor in this way. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. I don't love my neighbors often, right? I mean, if you can't embrace with all your flaws and all your hangups and all the things that need to change and be improved, if we can't embrace that we are children of God, made in the image of God, and that every single one of us has worth and value and dignity, and there's nothing you can do to earn those things that are already yours. Religion has kind of given us this system of trying to earn and prove. And the thing we're always trying to earn and prove, like why God should love us or why we should feel worthy of that, those things are already ours. I grew up hearing people say all the time, I'm not worthy of God's love. I'm glad God loves me anyway. And now I've recognized I can call bull on that because that's just not true. You're a human being which makes you worthy. So I want to do a little exercise uh, before we we move on and and do some singing. Is that okay? Can we do a little exercise together? Hope you all brushed your teeth because this is going to have a lot of, we're not going to kiss, we're just going to breathe. Okay, I realize when I say brush your teeth, that kind of gives it. Here's what we're going to do. I have this app on my watch. It's called Breathe. And I don't know if it follows my heartbeat or what, or my heart rhythm, but at random points in the day, usually when I'm feeling stress, it'll give me a notification that says, hey, breathe. (laughs) 
And it wants me to hit the start button. And when I hit start, it gives me this, this guided exercise of, of taking a deep inhale and holding it for just a moment and then... So let's just do a few, a few of these breaths. And I'll, I'll sort of do it like this. I'll just I'll pretend like I'm directing music. I'll, I'll raise it up. I'll tell you to hold it. And then we'll let it out. Does that work? Okay. And if you feel like you're going to pass out, don't, you don't have to keep doing it. Okay. Here we go. Ready? Let's breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. One more time. Breathe in. breathe out. When's, when's the last time you took a deep breath like that? It's, it's something that at the pace of life, and I, if it's this way in Kentucky, where we wait on tractors to get places, I'm imagining it's this way in, in Brooklyn or wherever you might call home, is that we don't often pay attention to the way we're breathing. Now I want to do this again, and here's what I want you to think about when you breathe in. When you breathe in, I want you to imagine that you are breathing in every good thing God has said about you, that you're breathing in your worth, that you're breathing in your dignity, that you're breathing in this good gift you've been given called being human, that you're breathing in everything you need to feel whole and complete. It's not somewhere else, it's right here. And so as you breathe in, I want you to think about all those things, worth, value, dignity. You are a beloved creature. And then when you exhale, I want you to think about breathing that same love, dignity, and belovedness and sense of importance. I want you to imagine you're breathing that out on everybody else in the room, okay? And then when you leave here and you're breathing, because here's the thing, my watch has to remind me to breathe a certain way, but my body somehow knows to do this. I'm always breathing. And so when you leave here, as you're walking down the street, as you're stuck in traffic, as you're waiting on your Uber, like whatever it is you're doing, as you breathe in, my, my hope is that you'll be, every breath, you'll be reminded of who you are, of how loved you are, how meaningful you are, and as you breathe that out, you'll also be reminded that everybody around you, even the weird people, are deeply, which is probably all of us, are deeply loved and deeply valued by God, okay? So let's do this. We're going to do it three more times, and then we're going to pray. Okay, here we go. Ready? Let's breathe in. Breathe out. Let's breathe in dignity, belovedness, humanity. Let's breathe those things out on everybody else. Let's breathe in everything God has said about us and breathe out everything God has said about everyone around us. Let's pray. God, for this gift of breathing, for this gift of life, for this gift that each and every human being in this room is, we are grateful. The things in us that cause us to want to wound others, that cause us to want to elevate ourselves at their expense, the things in us that cause us to act in ways that are actually deeply undignifying to us and to others, we need healing from those things. And so as we breathe today, May we be reminded of the gift that we are. May we be reminded that Jesus doesn't run from the things in us that are less than good, that are less than beautiful, that are less than attractive, but Jesus actually runs to those things in us. 
and affirms that even with all of our hang-ups and flaws and all the things we could do differently, that we are a beloved child of God, worthy of dignity, respect, and honor. And may we breathe that out on everybody we come in contact with, even our enemies. May we be reminded that they are the beloved of God as well. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. And everybody said,